0: How's everybody feeling today? Happy Father's Day to all the dads. We're glad to see all of you and glad to have all of you here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come as the spirit of truth. Thank you for anointing me today, anointing your word, Lord. Let it be like a fire. Let it be something that's powerful and transforming in our hearts and in our lives. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this all in the name of your wonderful and glorious Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We give you thanks and amen. Amen. And you can be seated, saints. I want to, uh, I'm going to do a Father's Day message, imagine that. Uh, sometimes I follow, you know, the rhythm of our traditions and sometimes I don't. But I want to ask you this morning this question, who is your daddy? Who's your daddy? <laughs> Hopefully I didn't cause a psychological conflict with someone <laughs> <laughs> whose mom had multiple partners before you were born. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a spiritual principle. Let me, let me get into the Bible. Let me, let's just do that. Hebrews chapter one. I try not to hurt people when I'm talking. Hebrews chapter one, verse one. And I'm going to read it in two different versions. King, New King James version first. God who at various times and in various ways Spoke in the times past to the fathers by the prophets. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Now in the original language, it says he has spoken to us in his Son. So it's different. Saying the Son has a totally different administration than prophets. He spoke by prophets, but he spoke in his Son. Got it? Whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world's. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice he says there that he is the bright, the sun is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Now I want to read it in uh, the NIV because it reads a little bit differently in the second verse. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Verse three, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The exact representation of his being. Now, the first thing I want you to see is that he's drawing a contrast between the old covenant of the prophets and the new covenant of the son. Yes, he spoke by the prophets, but in his last days he's spoken in, in the sun. And here's what he says. The sun is the exact representation of his being, which implies that what the prophets were saying is not the exact representation of his being. It's not exact. But when we look at the sun, the sun is exact. Now, I want you to think about also the, the, the idea of an image. Any of you in here that try to serve God? In any capacity. <laughs> well, I'm guessing you wouldn't be here if you weren't, right? Or you wouldn't be watching or listening or whatever. But here's what I want you to think about. The, 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 the way that you, you serve God is the way you do anything else. It's based on the impression or the image or the representation that has been impressed upon your soul based on teaching or experiences that you have had. So that none of us, because we, we can't see God, right? And we don't hear Him in a concrete way like with our physical ears or those kinds of things. You can't prove God scientifically. You can't, you can't measure God and say He's this tall and this wide and He looks exactly like this, right? So, so we do it by the medium, if you understand what I mean, of information that we have received that then impresses an image upon our hearts that then we relate to. Is that okay? Now the reason I'm saying this is because throughout my life, and you got to understand, I've been a Christian really all my life, but I had been um, dedicated to Christian service in one form or another since I was 17 years old. So... Unfortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at that, it's 30 years. So the first 20 years of my life, I had one image of God that I served. And the last 10 years of my life, I've had a quite different image of God that I serve. And if you've been around with us, because the church has been around a while, you've heard me preach this image, and you experienced the transition over to this image... And all of us have gone through this conflict, because as I was getting different images, I had to decide, who's my daddy? Which one is actually my father? Because you can't reconcile the two images. And so what I want to do for you this morning, what I want to do in this presentation, is I simply want to lay before you the two different images. And I will try to represent them as accurately as I can, based on my... Multiple personality disorder. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Based on my two lives, let's say it this way. In a past life, I served this image of God. In my current life, I'm serving this image of God. I found this image of God to be much more freeing, much more powerful, much more fruitful. Uh, I've been on this kind of theme since Easter Sunday was really when I started and I can tell you God's honest truth since Easter Sunday. I've had three to five or six messages a week from different people and by different people. I mean, it's not the same people every week. It's not five different people contacting me, encouraging me, telling me what, what, how the ministry is changing their lives. It's different people every week and we have podcasts that go out all, all over the world. We have the videos that go out, you know, Uh, and different ways that we're reaching people and i've had people contact me uh, five, four, five, three, four, five. At, at least three, as many as six every week. Saying my life has been totally changed by what you're sharing. And and here's what I hear more than anything else. I like this God better. I, I I I'm falling in love. One person told me, I've I the Jesus that you're talking about is not the Jesus that I know. Though I've been raised in church and I've I've done all this stuff. But the Jesus that you talk about, I long to get to know. That's the one that I get to know. And repeatedly, people are set free from anxiety. They're set free from fear. They've got more love and peace and joy in their life. So I can tell you that that's the fruit of that. And it <laughs> delivers the goods to people right where they're at. Now, I didn't experience that as much when I was serving this image of God over here. Uh, instead, I was experiencing a lot more frustration, a lot more anger, a lot more anxiety myself, having panic attacks myself. It was a shock to me when God set me free from panicking and anxiety that it was coming from my religion and not from my broken childhood. See, I was trained to believe, both as a therapist and as a, as a Christian and as a counselor, that if, if, if I had anxiety, if I had uh, uh, anger issues, if I had, you know, uh, any of that kind of stuff, that it was a result of some brokenness that happened in, in my youth. And so any of us can go if we look long enough back into our childhood and find traumatic experiences. Maybe you had terrific parents, but you had some traumatic experience with uh, a peers of yours, or maybe it was a teacher who told you you were stupid and you never amount to anything, or or whatever the case may be. And so and so I spent years trying to deal with issues out here and trying to find the roots of those issues in my in my fractured childhood and in traumatic experiences back there. But when I really truly got set free was when I realized the impression and the representation and the image of God that I had been serving was my problem. (laughs) I mean, it was a shock to me to just sit there. I sat there in disbelief for at least seven days. There's one of the prophets in the Bible, God spoke to him, and he was he stayed mute for seven days. I had an experience somewhat like that. I'm not being funny, I'm serious, where I was just like, You mean? Because as soon as I surrendered the image and the impression and the representation of the old God that I was serving, and was then able to embrace the new image, instantly, that instant the anxiety quit. That instant peace filled my heart. That instant I was able to love people without having to try to love people. You know what I'm saying? Because over here it was love them by faith, brother the word of God says love them so you just act on it and you just love them by faith and eventually your emotions will come along but the moment this God impacted my life the moment this God impacted my soul and I fully surrendered the other one the love switch just turned on the peace switch just turned on that doesn't mean I don't have trouble that doesn't mean I don't lose my temper that doesn't mean I'm perfected don't misunderstand me because I know some of you might be operating under that delusion. (laughs) But I can tell you this. If I love you, I authentically love you from my heart. If I'm joyful, I'm authentically joyful from my heart. If I'm peaceful, I'm authentically peaceful. If I'm mad at you, you're going to know. And it's authentic too. (laughs) It amazes me. I talked about this in the first service. But it amazes me that people... Because, see, we were taught by a system of religious control that said you can't think freely and you can't think outside the box and you can't challenge years of traditions. You do realize that, 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 that Galileo was about the only voice during his time period. You know, Galileo, the guy who said, No, the sun doesn't go around the earth. The earth goes around the sun. He was the only one in his time period who was saying that. He was a single voice. The masses and the powers that be in the religious structures and, and, and in church structures that existed, they said, no, 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 that you're wrong. And then they and they they threatened to kill him. They put a knife to his throat, threatened to burn him at a stake, whatever, and said, no, you must recant. And so he does. He saves his own skin and recants. But you know what happened? The earth kept moving around the sun. <laughs> And Galileo had the truth in his heart. And you know what? The entire church religious system had a lie inside their heart. And God says, I desire truth in the inward person. <laughs> and so we're st- in, in many ways, we're starting a revolution. Amen? Amen? So, but here's the question. Who's your daddy? So I want to use this as a, as a proof text. Matthew uh, chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I want to look at some of the things Jesus said. About his father. Because he was the exact, express representation of who God is. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7. I said Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 7 verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Therefore... Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. But here's what I want to focus on. If you look at how Jesus is trying to teach people, he's trying to give them an accurate, express representation of who his father is. And he says, if you want to understand who my father is, Jesus speaking, if you want to understand who my father is, go inside your own heart as a father. And ladies, go ahead and go inside your own heart as a mother and think about your children and think about the love that you have for your children and ask yourself this question how do you treat them and if you being evil know how to treat your children good how much more is your heavenly father going to treat people good how much more (laughs) So here is one representation of God that we hear today, preached by Christians. God is holy, God is just, and God is perfect. He has no moral flaws in Him whatsoever. And He created man in His own image and likeness and... He set them in the garden. And this man and this woman, running around naked, talked to a talking snake. And the talking snake talked them into eating an apple (laughs) at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the moment they did that, they disobeyed the perfection of God. And God comes in His anger and in His judgment and in His wrath, to deal with Adam and Eve in their fall and because Adam and Eve had sinned against them because they'd listened to the talking snake, he sends them out of the garden and makes them pay the penalty of death. And everyone born from this couple from that moment on is born in a sinful, evil, and wicked state. And God in His wrath against sin, well, okay, let's do it this way. God in His perfection allows the human race to continue. Allows it to continue to be fruitful and to multiply. Right? Knowing that the whole time that it's, been, that it's reproducing, it's reproducing evil. It's reproducing something that's totally against His nature and completely incapable of correcting itself. Yet, this God has a standard of righteousness that He knows His kids, or humanity, cannot fulfill or live up to. (laughs) But He still demands it of them. He still demands that they live up to a standard that they cannot live up to. And when they fail to live up to it, He becomes angry in His heart. And He becomes full of wrath, because you see, He's just. And every sin deserves a just punishment. And the just punishment for a temporary sin is eternal damnation and hellfire. Burning forever in eternal conscious torment. And that is just, and that is right, and that is true. Oh, but this God is a God of... Love. He's, he's also a God of love. He, he's a God of justice, and He's a God of wrath, and He's a God of anger, and He's a God of punishment. But He also loves us. So He feels sorry for us. Because after all, He knows we can't live up to that standard, right? Even though we should. But we don't have the capability to do it, but we should. So we're held accountable. Right? So what does he decide to do? He decides, I need to save them. So this is what this God... Now I want you to think about this for a minute. This is, this is what this God comes up for the plan of salvation. I know. I will take my son, and I will send him in human form, and only, hear me, only if he perfectly pleases me in every little way is this going to work. He never has a lustful thought, He never dishonors his mother or his father. He never tells a lie, not even a little lie, as a child. Everything he says is true. Everything he says is loving. Every time he's honoring and fully obeying his parents. Never covets for, never looks at another toy and says, that's mine, because that would be covetous. And the commandments say, thou shalt not covet. Because it's only if He fully pleases will He be an acceptable sacrifice to appease the wrath of this angry God. And so Jesus lives this perfect life, as and and then we come to the main event, and the main event is this. God has to deal with His anger somehow. He's got to deal with His justice somehow. He can't just forgive you. He can't just let you off the hook. That would make Him unjust. He can't let those sins go unpunished. He has to punish them. Otherwise, He's not a just God. He's not a holy God. He's not a perfect God. So how does He reconcile the conflict within Himself of His own love and His own justice? He sends His Son at a time, and He waits. He waits for the perfect time. He waits for the perfect time. And He watches this wicked humanity develop various forms of capital punishment. And the first one, he, he, maybe He gave to His own people. Pick up a rock, hit him in the head. Now, you know, stoning would be a fairly quick death. I'm not saying it would be pleasant. Not saying it would be as comfortable as maybe the lethal injection. But it's over pretty quickly. You know, a few rocks hit you in the head, you're knocked out. Even if you're still breathing, you're not feeling the rest of it. You're gone. Right? And then they come up with, who knows, you know, chopping off the head. Right? Chopping off the head. Take the sword, chop off the head, fall in different ways. And he looks at stoning, he says, no, that's not going to satisfy my wrath. And he looks at the sword, he says, no, 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 ch- ch- chopping off the head, that's too quick. i, I got to get more. There's got to be more than that. In ancient cultures, when, when they would offer their firstborn to the gods, oftentimes they'd just throw them in the fire throw them in a volcano or something, burn them to a crisp, right? That, would, that was enough to satisfy those gods, those angry gods that were causing storms and causing drought and causing... But not this god. No, he waits until the Romans come up with the most brutal and horrible form of public, most disgraceful most form of public execution ever invented by man. Have you ever had pain that you thought was excruciating Anybody ever had excruciating pain? You know where the word excruciate comes from? It comes from the word crucify. X means out of. So excruciate is really out of the cross. It's as painful as the cross. So in other words, God waits until humanity has developed the most inhumane, the most torturous, the most horrible, slowest, painfulest way for a human being to die. And he says, ah... Finally, I have found the instrument that will make me feel better about humanity and their sin. So he demands of his son that he lives his perfect life. And and he lets him be tested by the devil. Go ahead and be tested by the devil for 40 days. Be tested with food after you haven't eaten, after you've been starving for 40 days. Go ahead and test him with food. Let's take him into the garden and let him wrestle with it. Let's send the the devil to him right now to test him. How many saw the passion of Christ? I mean, Mel Gibson did a fantastic job of presenting the devil in that. And you've got the devil there in the garden, just like you had the devil there in the wilderness. Because he's got to pass all the tests, because his righteousness has to be perfect for this God. Finally, he gets it. Now, this is his own son, right? He gets it. This is his own son. And he says, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We're not just going to crucify him because that's bad enough. But no, we got to do it worse. So we're going to make sure he gets scourged first. And so what is this God doing? This God that I was taught, he's up here. It pleases the Lord. They think it says in Isaiah. Your newer translations say it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. And there's no doubt it was the will of God for Jesus to go to the cross. But we have to ask ourselves what was happening at the cross. But our older translations say it pleases the Lord to bruise him. So we have this idea then that he's up there getting pleasure. He's getting off on this. He's getting whipped. Whoosh! One, 39 stripe And you've got to understand there's rock and metal and, th- and it's just shredding the, the, the back. Somebody's out there thinking he's doing a great job presenting the gospel. And it's shredding his back and it would wrap all around him. And it would, we wouldn't just grab in the back, but it would grab in the front too and it would just rip flesh and bone and veins and arteries open. And they say, they say he did it 39 times. And here's God. It pleases the Lord to bruise him. And then they take they take this crown of thorns and they smash it down on his head. So he's bleeding from his head. And then they take him and they drive nails through his hands and nails through his feet. So he's bleeding out all these different places. And he's dying a slow, torturous death. And it pleases this God to bruise him. Because this, this is the love of God. This is the love of God. Because somehow, this is how God's going to be able to forgive humanity, and somehow this is how God's going to be able to save humanity. But see, we got to come up with the second... So here's God thinking. Here's this God thinking. i got to come up with the second part of the plan. <laughs> it's not enough just to do this. His wrath is satisfied. His wrath is satisfied. Before one person ever makes a decision to be born again. And it's still not enough. He'll still send you to hell. Even though in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says that Jesus is, they love this old English word that is another bad translation, but it's in our King James, and if King Jimmy said it and his translators in the 16th century, then by God, that's got to be the way it must be. I mean, every area of study and science has improved since the 16th century, but we're still going to hold on to an old translation. But you know, hey, because it's the one Jesus used. It's... And the Apostle Paul. It says in First John chapter two, verse two, that Jesus was the propitiation. It means the status, the appeasement offering, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So, in other words, what John is saying, what Paul clearly says in Second Corinthians chapter five, is that God is completely at peace with the rest of the world because He finally got His blood sacrifice. He finally got His appeasement. He's just like the pagan gods of old that have to be paid off with human sacrifice, but He finally got it. But that's still not enough for this God. Because you have to you have to do something. You have to make a choice. Excuse me, I didn't have a choice when Adam ate the apple. I'm born into wickedness. I'm born into sin. And I can't please God. And I can't please God and I can't please God. And all my efforts, I can't please him. And he's so angry about that he's going to cause me to suffer eternal conscious torment and flames of fire. This is Daddy. This is Father. Right? Then he, he finally gets his human sacrifice, but that's still not enough because even though you didn't have a choice in Adam, you have to make a choice for Christ in order to be saved. Well, what do you have to believe? Come on, Saints, what do you have to believe? Well, in this version, you have to believe you couldn't save yourself. You weren't good enough. There was nothing good inside you. And you have to trust. You have to take him as the sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God and believe in him. And if you do that by his vicarious atonement, by his atoning sacrifice, then God says, oh, you finally agree with me. Enter into your rest. Doesn't matter what you do with the rest of your life. Doesn't matter how you treat anybody else. Doesn't matter what the definition of a Christian in this is the person who realizes I got nothing good in me. All I got is evil in me anyway so I'm gonna trust in Christ and his sacrifice and I'll be saved and I'm in like Flynn and doesn't matter what the rest of what I do I don't have to grow my soul I don't have to change I can treat people any way I want to treat them I don't have to fight for social justice or fight against social injustices I don't have to take care of the hungry I don't have to clothe the naked I don't have to all I got to do is advance the cause of Christ and advancing the cause of christ is getting everybody to believe like me because that's the only way they can be saved and so you have this small 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 section of humanity that gets saved because because we know the church got off track in the second century because they didn't preach this mess sorry i'm still i'm trying to do it honestly you won't find this gospel in the writings of the early church fathers. You won't even find this gospel in the Catholic church, or the Greek Orthodox church, or the Syriac church, or the Indian church, or the Ethiopian church. All the ones that grew out of the Middle East because they fell into deception. Which means nobody was saved. Now there's seven billion people on the planet, and how many believe that? In their heart. Because it's not enough to believe it in your head, you gotta believe it in your heart. Well, how do I know? Is it in my head or isn't in my heart? So that little sliver of, sliver of humanity gets to come into heaven and the rest of humanity goes to the ovens for all eternity. Isn't God good? Isn't that good news? Don't you want to give your heart to this loving and compassionate God? Don't you want to serve him? Don't you want to follow Him? See, that's the God I was raised on. That's the God I got when I got saved. Oh, and and here's the other thing about that God. He's going to save a small section of humanity because He's just setting everything up. He's just sitting back waiting for things to line up in the Middle East. We thought it was Saddam Hussein in the 90s, but it wasn't. We thought it was Harry Kissinger in the 80s. We thought it was Ronald Reagan 666 in the 80s because he had six letters in his name, Ronald Wilson, Reagan, 666. Reagan's the Antichrist. Gorbachev has a spot on his head, and we're looking to see if there's, you know, we're blowing up the screen to see if we can find 666 on the spot on his head. Because this God's just waiting to destroy everything in a nuclear holocaust. And he loves his people Israel so much, he's going to gather them from all the different nations so that all the other nations can come to battle. And, and there's going to be blood. There's going to be bloodshed up to the uh, bridle, the, the, so that horses are swimming in blood. That is a bloodthirsty God we got. So you better get saved, and you better serve him, and you better get as many people saved as you can, because it could happen like a thief in the night. It could happen in a moment. And if you're left behind, too bad for you. You're going to have to deal with all that mess. Just make sure you don't deny him. At least they will just cut off your head. At least God, God had some mercy. He didn't bring back crucifixion. He's cutting off the heads. That's so inspiring. But is it the God of the Bible? Let me ask you this question. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to do good, how much more? There's your Heavenly Father. I mean, this version of God, can can I be honest with you? He's worse than Hitler. Hitler sent the Jews to ovens that turned off. This God, will send. he doesn't care if you're Jewish, Mexican, African, red, yellow, brown, or white, you're all going to burn the same unless you accept the atoning sacrifice. Unless you get the facts straight. And what happens if the missionary that came to your town didn't have his facts straight? What if I showed up in town? And what about the person who never heard the gospel? They don't have an answer. They don't have a clue. What about that person? They never heard of Adam or Christ. Damned in Adam, but still not saved in Christ. Oh, but the person who hears and rejects, we're quite sure they're going to hell. So we do them a great service. I've heard them say, you know, well, if they haven't heard, then God will be merciful towards them. But if they've heard, they're accountable for what they've heard. So we send them missionaries to make them accountable for what they've heard. All right, let's change gears. This doesn't jive with Jesus, who's the express image of his person. It doesn't jive at all with what Jesus says. Look, look inside your own heart. Let me, how many people have you had to forgive? Anybody in here ever had to forgive somebody for anything? Anybody ever had to forgive multiple somebodies? Did you kill somebody first? Did you think about killing somebody first? Not... I don't mean the person you have to forgive. I mean the person who pleases you the most in the world. Who thinks like this? This is crazy. Religion is crazy and it will drive you crazy. And it's been proven in scientific laboratories that if you believe this, your limbic system will swell. They have proven scientifically, a doctor out there by the name of Andrew Newberg, has shown that a lifetime of believing this causes as much brain damage as a lifetime of drugs and alcohol. Is it any wonder they can't think their way out of a paper box? I have people that believe that, that are pastors and leaders, and their life is a total mess. And they'll stand up, and they'll preach the gospel, and they'll talk about faith, and they'll laugh, and they'll fall on the floor, and they'll pray for people, and people will fall on the floor, and they come to people like me in the night. When nobody's around and their kids come to me and talk to me and say dad would preach a victorious message and laugh hysterically and get the whole congregation laughing and he'd go home and lay on the couch depressed and yell at the family and yell at the kids. And we hold them up and think they're wonderful men of God and they're on psychotropic drugs because they're doing brain damage on religion. We need to, how many of you remember that commercial in the 70s and the 80s, this is your brain, you know, the, the, this is your brain on drugs and it's frantic. What do you do? This is your brain. This is religion. This is your brain on religious mess. And you try to help them and, and you try to help them. You, they find the broken places inside themselves and, and, and you bring Jesus. You help them discover the Christ that is in them. You help them discover the Jesus that is in them that's been there all along that's knocking at the door of their religious structures saying if you'll just let me in I'll come in and I'll sup with you and I'll heal you and I'll make you an overcomer. And they can't overcome in life because Jesus is knocking at the door and they're afraid of that Jesus, and I've had them tell me that the deepest hurts of their life and you would think finally they're connecting the power and the grace of God with the deepest hurts of their life, and I've had them tell me I don't trust that Jesus and from I just decided this week I'm going to tell them I don't trust that Jesus either. Because that's their problem, and that's how they get saved, and that's how they get healed, and that's how they get delivered, is to realize that Jesus is, a, is is not real. He's not real. That God is not real. But you have to decide who's your daddy. And they won't do it. They won't do it. i got to go get back in the Word. I got to go get my life sorted out, man. The grace of God, your moment of victory, your moment of peace, your moment of triumph is right there. I can't do it because I'm not good enough. I don't trust Him. And then they'll preach to you and tell you trust Him. Just trust Jesus. He'll come to them for counseling, and they'll tell you, oh, just trust the Lord. He's going to make it work out for you. And the whole time their life is a mess. Whole time they're depressed. Whole time their kids hate them. Whole time their marriages are falling apart. They're... Yeah. Not all of them. Not all of them. But most of them struggle with anxiety. Most of them struggle with depression. Most of them struggle with self-doubt. And how could you not? I know I did. Matthew. Sermon on the Mount again. Matthew chapter 5. I'm almost done. I went longer than I wanted to actually for Father's Day. (coughs) Verse 43. Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Is that what this father does? Does he do good to those who hate him? Or does he send them to eternal conscious torment? Watch this. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. That you may be replicas of your father in heaven. See, Jesus says, this is what your father's like. If you'll do this, you'll be like him. But we don't do that. We Nuke North Korea. We don't care. We don't care how many men, women and children are killed because God's going to destroy it all in fire anyway. And there's a Baptist minister stands up and says, I have the mind of God for President Trump. God help us. God help the world. I have the mind of God for President Trump. He needs to nuke North Korea. Well, why not? They're going to hellfire anyway. Is that what Jesus said? No. You realize Constantine, I'm off my message. I want to get to the goodness of God, but you realize Constantine caused Christianity to triumph in Rome. We celebrate him as a hero. You realize he was power hungry and he was bloodthirsty. And he was facing a battle with Rome that no general before him had ever won. And he was troubled and he went to sleep and in his sleep he has a dream of a blazing cross and he hears these words, in this sign you shall conquer. Now you could take that many different ways. The Bible talks about our dreams that we cause ourselves to dream in Jeremiah chapter 8. Do not follow the dreams that you cause yourself to dream. And what causes you to dream oftentimes is what you want the most. You can't have it so you'll dream about it. Or, let's say it did come from God. Do you think he was talking about him conquering militarily? Or do you think he was talking about him conquering over his own lusts and drives for power? How does Constantine interpret it? So he creates a banner of a cross, and he goes across the sea, and he sheds blood and he conquers Rome, and he says, now Christianity has to become compulsory. So he sets it up as a political empire. And do you realize, do you realize that from that point on, Christianity was advanced through violence? Queen Isabella, one of the things that she said in her writings was she said, I've destroyed whole villages. I've wiped out masses of people. I've killed young and old women and babies alike, all for the love of my Savior and in the name of Christ. What about the conquistadors that came over from Europe And told the Native Americans, give us your gold, give us your land. Give up your faiths and your traditions. And if you don't, we're going to cut your hands off and we're going to wear them around our necklaces so that we can intimidate you because we have superior power, but we come in the name of Christ. And we're still doing the same thing today. And is it any wonder? Because you become like the God you worship." Last thing. We're done. Can I keep going just a little bit? Because i got to get over to this. This. Luke 15, verse 11. You'll know the parable. Jesus, a certain man had two sons. This is Jesus, the exact representation of God. A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, watch this, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, oh, hallelujah, somebody say when he was still a great way off. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And he ran and fell on his neck and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and put sandals on his feet. Bring out the fatted calf and kill it. So he could deal with his anger. Is that what it says? No, so he could celebrate. Bring out the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead, but he is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to make merry. And now his older son was in the uh, now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near the house and he heard the music and the dancing. So he called the servants and he said, what are meant by these things? And he said, your brother has come. And because he was, your father has received him safe, he has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And so he answered and said to his father, Lo, many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours comes home, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. And it was right that we should make merry and be. Glad for your brother was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Yes. Where is justice? You gotta understand in the culture of the ancient Near East, you, you didn't do this. You didn't go off to college. You inherited your father's business. It wasn't until 1901 that people started going out and learning other trades. Go watch with your kids. Some of these kids' movies are great. Go watch uh, Coco. With your kids, and you'll see how they're shoemakers, and they they've always been shoemakers because that's how that's how it was done, right? And to ask your father for an inheritance before he's died is to say, "I wish you were dead." And then he takes his half and he goes and spends it in Las Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. He's going to shows, he's going to he's gambling, he's eating every night, different harlot every night. But finally he comes to himself, and was it the realization, oh my God, my father's out looking for me, he's going to get me. My father's going to find me, he's going to throw me in prison. My father's going to find me, he's going to put me in an oven. Was that what it was? He says, no, my father's so good that even his servants have it better than I have it here. And I will go, and I will go in a repentant heart, and I will talk to my father. And, and what's the father doing? The father is looking to see his son a great way off. Let me ask you the question. Where, where is, where is the justice? Where is the death? Where is the cross? Where, he didn't, he didn't grab the elder son who always pleased him and said, we gotta kill him now. It's interesting. Both sons left the father's house. One son comes all the way home. We don't know if the other one did. And what about this killing the fatted calf? Because if there's a death anywhere, it's, it's the fatted calf that's in there. You, do you understand that a parable is there to teach you about yourself and about the kingdom? It's there to awaken something in your consciousness, reveal something to you about yourself. Jesus isn't just telling stories. He's telling stories that will change you, that will touch your soul and change you. So here's the reality You want the inner, inner interpretation of this? The inner interpretation of this is this. You have two sons inside you. You have one son who wants to be good and always do what the father says. And you have another son that wants his freedom to go out and experience life differently than what father is telling him to do. You got one son who's rebelling against the urge to leave, and you got the other son who's rebelling against the urge to stay. And what does the father do? No, you can't have your inheritance. No, I'm insulted. No, my honor and glory has been harmed. No. Nope. You know what he does? He finances his way into sin. He not only gives him the freedom to do it, he empowers him to do it. Let that one soak in. Alarm bells in the church house are going off somewhere. Somebody here. What? What do he say? Read, read the story. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. See, your life gets... All of us have a conscience. All of us want to do things that go against the system, that go against the rules, that go against what we perceive as righteousness. And all of us have a conscience when we go and do those things. If we go too far. But neither part neither the good nor the evil is in fellowship with the Father or united in the Father's house. And so what is the killing the fatted calf? The killing the fatted calf is the part of your lowly nature that either gets fat off doing good or gets fat off doing your own thing. And the only way to bring everybody together is to kill the fatted calf. So that the real goodness of the heart of God can be revealed. So here's what the cross is. Here's what the cross is. The cross is the fatted calf getting slain. Here's what the cross is. The cross is God himself. God in these last days having spoken to us through his son. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What you have is various opinions, a multi-vocal voice in the Old Testament about what God is like. Some people say he demands sacrifice and offering. David and other prophets come along and say sacrifice and offering you did not desire. You desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then you have some saying, and here's here's the vision of God from Job to Deuteronomy throughout the Old Testament. Here's man's image of God. If you're good, God will bless you. If you're evil, God will curse you. So when bad things happen to people, we say there must have been something. There must have been a crack in their foundation. There must have been some way they let the enemy in. There must have been something wrong with their faith. God must have been trying to teach them something. See, that's the group that stands over here. And if you're good, if it worked, then you must be blessed. And so here's the cross. Here's here's Jesus, who was better than any human being of his time, who's teaching love, who's teaching forgiveness, who's bringing reconciliation, who's reaching out to the broken and the disenfranchised, who's feeding the poor, who's feeding the hungry, who's healing the sick. And what does that religious system do? They say, no, you can't have a free thought. You can't be doing good works if you don't believe with our doctrine. You don't believe what our scriptures say. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll shut your voice up. We'll murder you. And they may not murder you today, but they'll go out and ruin your reputation. To cut you off from people. I've seen them do it. And so what you do is you have the unjust. Here's the cross. At the cross, you have the man who never did anything wrong being crucified by those who are lying about him and who are unjust. And as He hangs on that cross, what does He say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And He's overturning thousands of years of beliefs about what God is like. That He has to be appeased. That He has to triumph. That He's going to use His force to coerce you. That He's going to take away your freedoms. That He's going to send you to burn in hell. Father, forgive them. They know not. That's why if you read the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts, the way they preached the cross in the book of Acts, you realize the only record of sermons that we have that were preached are in the book of Acts. It's the only way we know what the early church preached in our Bibles. And every time they preach, they mention the cross. Every single time they mention the cross. And you know what they say about the cross? Never do they say God sent His Son to die so that He could satisfy His wrath. Never. Never do they say it was an angry God who killed Jesus. Instead they say... This just one, this perfect one, you have taken by lawless and wicked hands and you have crucified him. Nevertheless, on the third day, God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. In other words, the cross and the resurrection is the complete overturning of the system in the minds of men and all the wicked, evil misrepresentations of who God is so that God could fully be displayed at the cross. Christ dying on the cross, saying, I will not coerce you and I will not bribe you. I will not prostitute you. I will not have relationship with you because I will bless you and I will not have relationship with you because you were forced and I will treat you all the same. I'll forgive you all for all your sins. And then the way it applies to us is when we kill the fatted calf... And we realize we can't get fat on doing good and point our finger at our brothers who aren't doing well so that we feel good and fat. And we can't go out and just get fat trying to get away from any kind of standards or any kind of values at all and just feed all our desires on whatever because it just leaves us in a pig pen and it leaves us empty. And so what has to happen is both have to come together over the fatted calf where the Father and the goodness of the Father is revealed. What if God isn't like what we've been told? What if He's nothing like what we've been told over here? But what if He's like what Jesus said He was? If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father do good? So who's your daddy? you got to serve one image or the other. You can't serve them both. Which one makes the most sense? Which one resonates as the most true? Which one's going to produce peace in your heart? You never know about this Jesus over here. One day He's loving prostitutes and the next day He's coming in wrath and fury to chop them up. Just a matter of time. Or the one who is consistently representing A God of such pure and unconditional love that our human minds can hardly grasp it. Who's your daddy? Amen. Let's stand up. You've been sitting for a long time. I didn't mean to go as long on that. kind of got into myself a little bit. (laughs) Too much. It's revolutionary. I'm telling you, the religious system does not like this. But they're dying off. And something new has to hit the scene. And whether people receive it or don't receive it, it I I believe it with all my heart. It's the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth. So, Lord, bless your people. Bless these messages. Let it go all over America. Father, let us raise up a revolution carrying the banner of a father who is perfectly loving, perfectly good, perfectly wonderful, setting captives free. Bringing healing, bringing wholeness, bringing peace, bringing love and joy. In every aspect of this earth, Father, let your radiance and the exact expression of who you are fill the earth. And I ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Father's Day.